0: Well, tonight we are going to enter the most sacred place of the sanctuary, the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. As we do that, we are going to encounter yet another of the most bizarre passages in the Bible you've ever heard in the book of Leviticus. Only this one's going to be rather disturbing. So as we've been teaching through Leviticus, we've also been teaching how to study the Bible with certain Bible study methods or hermeneutical principles that were on that bookmark we gave out the first week. If you don't have that, feel free to pick one of those up because each one of these will help you in your own personal Bible study. The principle we're going to look at today is this one. Use clear passages to interpret the unclear ones. If you've read through the Bible in any cursory way, there are times you're like, what in the world does that mean? And the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. Usually, there's another passage later on in the New Testament or later on in that particular passage that gives some clarity. And we're going to need some clarity for today's passage. And we're going to eventually jump to Hebrews to help us. But actually, Leviticus 10 is helped and explained by Leviticus 16. So we're going to let the clear passage help us understand the unclear one. Because what we're going to discover today is that God... God's holiness is a fire like fire. There's something beautiful about fire. There's something dangerous about fire. There's something you want to get close to fire. And yet you have to be careful around a fire. God's holiness is a fire to be feared. But it's also a fire that can be consumed can be taken into us. God's holiness is a fire to be feared because his goodness is so strong. We can't even fully come into his presence without being in danger. And yet it's also a goodness, it's a kindness, it's a courage we can take into ourselves that becomes part of us. His spirit in us. So to do that today, we're going to look at two idioms. And I hope as we look at these two idioms, we'll spend the bulk of the time on the first one, just a little bit of time on the second. We're going to understand how distinct God is. How holy God is. How unlike and other than us He is. And I hope we're going to be convicted a bit. That we have a tendency in our current culture to make God in our own image. We want to come to God on our terms. Which is a pretty arrogant thing. But philosophy in the last 50 years is common thinking that God should let us come to Him on our terms. Rather than us coming to God on His terms. The first idiom we're going to look at is this. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. And God's presence is that fire. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. So then Nadab and Nabahu, the sons of Aaron, these are they priests, they're the sons of the high priest, each took his censer and put fire in it. And then he offered profane fire before the Lord. Profane fire. Other commentators or other writings call it strange fire. They offer strange fire or profane fire before the Lord. Well, how bad can it be? I'm sure God will let it go. They're just uh, These are pastoral people, priestly people, working in the sanctuary, doing God's work. I'm sure whatever profane fire is, I'm sure whatever strange fire is, God won't make that big a deal about it. Verse 2. Then fire... <laughs> went out from the lord and devoured them and they died before the lord and immediately you're like what is profane fire what is strange fire why is god silver overreacting is this a good god is this a gracious god do i want to know this god do i want to get close to this god i'm not sure i can trust a god who devours priests we simply offering things the wrong way. A lot of questions and a lot of lack of clarity here. And the chapter goes on and doesn't really explain the profane fire. So in order to dig into this, we're going to take, if you have a Bible software, go to BibleGateway.com. If you typed in, for example, Nadab or Abihu and see, does, does their name show up anywhere else in the Bible to give us commentary? Sure enough, it would pop up Leviticus 16. You typed in the phrase profane fire or strange fire. Does that show up anywhere in the Bible? Sure enough, it does. In Leviticus 16. Let's see if that helps us understand what's happened here and why this seems to be such a big deal. So strange fire. First thing we discover in Leviticus 16 verses 1 to 2 is that the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. That's how I jump to this passage. The sons of Aaron. When they offered... Profane fire. So God is now going to give commentary in chapter 16, talking about the Day of Atonement, about what happened back in chapter 10. When these two died. And the Lord said to Moses, I want you to tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil. Going behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant is is dangerous. And I want you to come into my presence, but there's only one time a year you can do that. And, and, and there's only one person who can do that, not just a priest, the high priest. Because when you come before the mercy seat, and I'll explain what the mercy seat is in a moment, which is on the ark itself, lest he die. So God is warning you, I want you in my presence, but if you don't cover yourself properly, you're going to be in danger. Take that with your kids, right? You, you said your kids or grandkids. Hey, don't touch that stove. It's hot. And what's the first thing they did? And when they touched it, oh, man, they played with fire and got burned. Does that mean the fire isn't good? Does that mean you have a bad stove? Does that mean you have an evil fire? No. It means they didn't take proper precautions in coming into the presence of something so holy. They didn't put on the oven mitt. Imagine in the, in the morning, you know, you've been sleeping all night and somebody comes in, and throws all the lights on in your house. You're like, oh, oh, my eyes, right? Your eyes can't handle how bright the light is. And God is saying, My holiness is so bright behind that veil. My goodness is so permeating. You can't come into my presence without the threat of death if you don't have a proper covering. And so God is warning in advance. I want you in my presence, but there's certain things you've got to do to make sure you're safe. Lest you die. Why? He says, here's why. Because I personally appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus, Aaron shall come into the holy place as the high priest with the blood of a young bull. You're going to need that sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering. Very specific things you need to come into my presence. And so what's happening back in chapter 10 is we got two guys who are not high priests, not on the day of atonement, not going through the proper covering to come into God's presence. And that's why I said our first point is it's strange when we think we can come to God on our own terms. I'm sure God will be fine with it. I'm sure not in danger. I mean, God's sort of on my level. He's a buddy. No. God is both transcendent. He's so different from us, it's dangerous to be near His power and His goodness without covering. But God is also imminent. He wants to be close to us. He wants us to draw near. But we need to understand we're coming in the presence of somebody so powerful, so beautiful, that without properly covered, we're in danger. The chapter 16 continues and says, it's only strange when we think we come to God on our own terms, but it's strange when we think we can be the high priest. Aaron's sons were saying, ah, Dad can be the high priest. We can be the high priest. No, no. Even when Aaron comes, he shall bring a bowl of the sin offering, which is for himself. He's going to make atonement for himself. He can't bring any of his own contamination into my space. He needs to make atonement or a covering for himself and for his whole household. And he's going to kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. He takes a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord in his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. So what's also strange about their strange, profane fire is they're not only coming to God on their own terms, didn't work out real well, but they also think they can be the high priest. Now to explain what all this said in chapter 11 and 12, I thought it might be more helpful to see it Rather than to just read it. So I want to walk you through what was supposed to happen with the high priest. So you can understand what didn't happen with Aaron's sons. All right. So remember, we're in the tabernacle and inside the tabernacle was the holy place, which had a veil in the front of it that the priest could come into inside the sanctuary or holy place was the menorah. There was some showbread on the table. There was an incense altar or the uh, Where the incense was going up before the Lord. And then there was another curtain. Behind this curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. Priests could not go in there. Only the holy priest could go behind there. And only after he'd prepared himself to be safe in God's presence. And so there were several stages that had to occur. But you never got to see what happened. So today we're going to give you a special treat we're going to give you a chance to x-ray, have x-ray vision to see behind the curtain and see what would happen with the high priest. So, as we go behind the curtain, you're going to see what the high priest does as he comes before the altar. So, the first thing the high priest would do, it says, is he would come to the burnt offering where the sacrifices were made out in the main area. He would take a censer and he would put the coals from the burnt offering onto it. He would not have used his hands. He he pulls up the burning um, coals and puts them on here. He then takes these coals and he goes past the first veil into the sanctuary. Here he comes to the incense altar where he'd get some incense. And he would put incense onto the censer. And he would then take that behind the veil. So he goes behind the veil. One of the things you would notice... Is that he would step into God's presence, still holding on to the censer. As he came into God's presence, he's going to come in three times. And as he does, the incense would be burning that he put on those coals. And this would create a covering in the same way that Moses had to hide in the cleft of the rock to see God's goodness. Because God is appearing right above the angels on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is right here in this section. He actually had the incense create a cloud covering that allowed him to see God's presence. But this became a barrier that allowed him to see God or be with God, but still be protected. So one of the reasons that this was profane fire is that Aaron's sons didn't have this protection going on. In the same way Moses had it, God wants you to see his goodness, but you need to be protected in order to do it. So with the incense burning and this protection, he took the first step in and then he would make his way back out. Now, as he made his way back out, he would come out and he would sacrifice a bull. And on the second encounter out, he would come and there would be a bull offering, as Gary talked a little bit last week. The bull would be sacrificed for the Day of Atonement. He would then take the blood of the bull, a reminder of our idols, a reminder of the things we choose to follow besides God. And he would take some of the blood from the bull. He would take a second trip back through the uh, temple and back behind the veil to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, with the blood of the bull, he would make his way up to this section of the Ark. Now, between here and here is called the mercy seat. These angels are looking down. And they're looking down because God's judgment on betrayal, God's judgment on dishonesty, on unthankfulness... God's judgment faces down onto the mercy seat or onto the propitiation. So when he poured the blood of the bull onto the mercy seat, it absorbed the judgment coming from the two angels and it took it on our behalf. Thus, it became our mercy. Thus, it became our atonement or our propitiation. After he poured the blood it we then come back around. And he would call for two goats to be brought in. The two goats would be brought before the people. And the two goats, they would basically roll dice. It's called casting lots. One of the goats would become the scapegoat. So we get the term scapegoat in our culture. I'll tell you what that means in a second. That's the one that escaped judgment. Judgment. So he would be let go free in the wilderness, a sign that you could be separated from your sins. You're free from the consequences of wrongdoing. The other goat that the dice or the lots fell toward would be the sacrificial goat. This was an innocent goat that would die on behalf of the priest and the people and everything they've done wrong. So we have a scapegoat. and What's a scapegoat? Someone innocent who takes the blame for what somebody else did. So this was a powerful image of a scapegoat and a sacrificial goat. The sacrificial goat would be killed. His blood would be collected for a third trip into God's presence in order to be back behind where the high priest could go. So he would take the blood of the goat, the sacrificial goat, make his way behind the veil. He would then come up into the ark. Again, this is not the bull's blood. Quick reminder, this is the goat's blood. Sacrificial goat poured into the bowl. It would then be poured again onto this section here. Now, before he did that, he would take the blood and sprinkle it seven times. And we noticed how blood all through the Bible is used to sanctify or to cleanse something because it's a sign of life. So everything's being cleansed seven times around the ark, poured it into the section on the mercy seat. So this is the process that the high priest went through because God wants us to come near. He's imminent. He wants to be close. But we need to recognize He's transcendent. You just can't come into His presence unprotected. And that's everything that happened behind the curtain. Now, when you understand all the proceedings God put in place, you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, Aaron's sons didn't know what they were dealing with. They came in To God's presence on their own terms, they came in thinking they were qualified to be the high priest. They didn't need the covering. They didn't need the smoke. No wonder they were in danger. Which is why we get a little clarification here. If you look back at chapter 16, the Lord says to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come in at any time. I've made a special time that you can come into this presence, into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat and i want you to be careful i want everyone to be careful lest you die lest you die this isn't mean spirited old testament god this is god saying i want to warn you i want you near but you don't do it a proper way you're in danger of all the analogies i've given you in this series one that i think is true again here is the idea of a welder if you've ever seen someone welding or welding arc you'll know that you you're not supposed to look at a welding arc without a shield Because your eyes can't handle the presence of such power, such fire, such beauty. Your eyes can literally be destroyed. I was on a plane a few months ago and sit next to a guy and asked him what he did for a living. He said he was a welder. I thought, what's the most uh, dangerous thing you've ever done? They talk about underwater welding or something. He said, well, early in my career, instead of putting the typical shield down, which is dark and it's harder to see, they came with a new kind of glass that stayed Clear. So you could see the whole time that you were welding, it just filtered out the rays that could damage your eyes. I said, wow, I've never heard that before. He goes, no, you haven't. He goes, I welded all morning and my eyes were just watering. I went in to see the doctor and he said, oh my goodness, you are probably going to go blind. What did you use to weld? I said, well, this new glass. He said, I don't know who told you that. But that is not a proper covering. He said he would be in the hospital for two weeks with bandages, protecting his eyes, his eyes healing. And he said, luckily, I ended up not losing my sight. Well, there is an example of somebody who came into the presence of something powerful with a covering, just not the proper covering to be in the presence of such power. That's what happened with Aaron's sons. They had the improper covering to come into this kind of goodness. So let's go back to Leviticus chapter 10. Now we understand what profane fire is. Our third aspect that makes it strange that we see in these two signs is it's strange when we try and lower God's standard of holiness. And that's what's happening here. Oh, I'm sure God won't think it's a big deal how I use my money this way. I'm sure God won't make a big deal about this kind of bad attitude. I'm just being a little grumbly. I'm just being a little critical. I'm sure God will bring his standard down to mine and how I use my body or how I use my money or, or how I treat other people. See, Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, if you want to be near me, you're going to experience me. I must be regarded as holy. I'll start with the word holy for a second. That's not just holy conduct. Think of it like this. You've seen moments of somebody who's really kind. God is the whole version of kindness. You see, people are really courageous. God is the whole version of honor and courage. God is the whole version of forgiveness. He is the whole piece, the whole package when it comes to all the great good attributes in life. And put them all together. He's a holy, pure, good fire of all the wholeness. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. I'm going to explain this and then it'll word it. It's a little hard to follow for a second. He's saying, now, Aaron, you represent me as a priest of people. Your sons have just died. Because you represent me, if you mourn and if you grieve, you're going to give an improper perception to the people that you think I'm not good and that you think what I did is unfair. So I want to ask you as the high priest not to mourn your son's death. Because people could misconstrue that as you saying, well, I shouldn't have done this, that I'm not holy, that this was unfair. I warned you. So I want you to not mourn your children's death, though I'll let my people mourn it, because I don't want you as leaders to give an improper perception. So here we see this call to leadership, even the Old Testament, that as leaders we're held to a higher level of standard. Let me play it out here what it says. So Moses calls Mishah and Elsephone, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron. And they said to them, we need you to come near. Carry your brothers, Aaron's sons, from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went in and carried them by their tunics out of the camp. I can't imagine. You're a father. Your sons didn't follow proper procedure. They touched something hot. They went into a dangerous situation. You're not mourning, as Moses will tell you in a second. Meanwhile, some other relatives come in and they're dragging out your sons by their tunic because now the sons have become unclean. They're dead and you have uncleanness in God's holy place and they're pulling this, the, the deadness out of the sacred space. And as Aaron is there devastated, wow, well, I didn't realize just how distinct, how different, how holy, how significant this is to be in God's presence. Moses goes on and says, Aaron... Eleazar, Ephethomar, his sons, his other sons. Do not uncover your heads, a sign of mourning, nor tear your clothes, a sign of weeping, lest you die. And wrath will come upon the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, they can bewail, they can mourn, they can grieve the process that the burning which the Lord has kindled. It makes sense. But because you represent God, I don't want people to misunderstand your mourning as thinking that I'm not good. So I need you to mourn differently and quietly. You shall not go out from the door of tabernacle of meeting lest you die. For the anointing oil from the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Wow. And I think one of the reasons this lesson's here, and you say, well, that's the Old Testament God, thank goodness we're done with him. Same thing happens in the book of Acts. Ananias and Sapphira, early on in the book of Acts, decide they think they can sell a piece of property, pretend that they're really giving all of it, but keep a piece back. Peter shows up and says, hey, you've not lied to to man, but to God. And Ananias and Sapphira dropped down dead because they came into a holy presence of God, tried to get credit for themselves for something they hadn't done. So this holiness of God transcends the Old and New Testament here. And we can't bring God down to our level. We need to recognize that in Christ, he brings us up to his level. But the idea that we can sort of tell God he needs to not take such and such so seriously or not such and such so seriously is pretty arrogant and self-centered, if you think about it. Fourth aspect, this is a weird transition. It goes to D. It's strange when we lose the ability to discern between good and bad, holy and unholy, clean and unclean. Yet you see this all the time. People sear their conscience. People slowly move away from God. They define morality. They define right and wrong in their own terms. And then they get to the place and you're like, how did they get there? This is a friend of mine used to say, don't do this. That was right. And now they're doing the very thing they said they'd never do. Right? You've seen this hundreds of times in your friends, in a neighbor, in a parent, in a pastor, in a priest. How did they get there? When you move away from God, you become wise in your own eyes. You become your own definition of truth. And you slowly lose the ability to distinguish right and wrong. And God says, it's strange when you lose the ability to know what's holy and unholy. But he launches into this big talk in alcohol, which is weird until you think about it. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. Now, he doesn't forbid drinking alcohol. Of course, they drank alcohol. That's what they did at their feasts all the time. Some of the best wine. He says, don't drink alcohol when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. Well, how does this have to do with anything we've talked about? Well, sometimes when you've been drinking too much, you may forget to put the censers a certain way and you may not put the, the, the blood a certain way. You may only sprinkle four times, not seven times. That's the point. You've got to have focus. You've got to, you've got to make sure you do this right. If you're going to come into God's presence, you want to have all your faculties about you is what his point is. So because I'm so holy, don't come in intoxicated. It shall be a statute forever through your generations that you may, and here it is, distinguish between holy and unholy. Between unclean and clean. You don't want to come into my presence not clean. And because you're inebriated, you you forgot to do something. And you lost the ability to discern between holy and unholy, good and bad. That you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. So that's what's going on here. Now, that brings us to a second Bible study principle I want to share here. And this is really creative. I call it. The Jesus principle. I know, I know, I know. Worked really hard on that one. But this is so key. You hear me do this a lot when, when I speak, or when I preach. But this is so important when you study the Bible. If you don't study the Bible through the Jesus principle, you end up with a list of, of to-dos for yourself. The Bible's not ultimately a to-dos for you. It's about Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he turns to his followers and he opens up the scripture. And from the book of Moses... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the prophets and the writings, and shows them that the entire Bible was about him. So everything we just read about was about Jesus. Come on, Chad. Everything we just read about is about Jesus. Maybe I see one analogy here or there. Here's the principle. What does this passage predict, describe, or reveal... About Jesus' character, Jesus' work, or Jesus' mission. And it is everywhere. What do you mean it's everywhere? It is everywhere. Who is the son who dies because of God's wrath? It's Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the son that took the wrath of God for us. More than that... Where's Jesus going on in this passage? He is our atonement. He is our tabernacle. The term I talked about, the ark, the piece of the ark on the top where the blood sat, is called the mercy seat. It absorbs the judgment of God. Paul shows up in the book of Romans and says, Jesus is our propitiation, which is the part of the ark. Jesus is our mercy seat. His blood absorbed any judgment we deserved for our wrongdoing so that we could be free. More than that, Jesus is the ultimate high priest who could go behind the veil. And when he died, what happened? The veil was torn so that we can have access to a place we could only see through x-rays before and imagine. More than that, Jesus is both a sacrificial goat. The, The lot was cast upon him and he who is innocent dies on our behalf that his blood would be poured upon the ark. But he's also the scapegoat the innocent one who paid for the wrongdoing of someone else, that we could escape judgment. And those are just a few of the ones that are in here. Unless you think, well, Chad, thank goodness you've got a creative mind. You can come up with this. I'm not sure I could see it. Here again, we see how the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 9. The book of Hebrews is a commentary on Leviticus most of the time. And look at how it says it. Indeed, there used to be a first covenant. It had ordinances, a divine service, an earthly sanctuary. It built a tabernacle. You did stuff. A tabernacle was prepared. The first part, which was the, the lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, which is the censer, and the Ark of the Covenant. And above it was a cherubim, of two angels of glory overshadowing the, there it is, the mercy seat. And now he gets into Jesus. Now, when these things were prepared back in Leviticus, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing services, but they couldn't get into the second part. Only the high priest could. And he could only do there once a year alone. The Holy Spirit did this, or indicated this, or taught this. The way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing, it didn't fully work. You had to do it again, and again, and again, every day, more sacrifice, every year, another day of atonement. However, it was symbolic for the present time. It pointed us to the ultimate high priest. It points to the ultimate sacrifice in both gifts and in the sacrifices. They were offered, and they cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. We needed to be made perfect in conscience, and these things didn't get the job done. But Christ. Verse 11, but Christ came as the ultimate high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Remember, Jesus turns to his disciples and say, well, I will destroy this tabernacle. I'll destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. He is the tabernacle. He is the sanctuary. And he who was crucified rebuilt the sanctuary in three days on Easter. Not made with hands. No, no. Now a temple that could be put into you and put into me. It's not even of this creation what he would do. Not with the blood of goats. There's our goats. Not with calves. There's our calves. But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Wow! It's all about Jesus. Now there's principles about us respecting God's holiness, but... But it's really about what God did for us that we can live in freedom, free from guilt, free from shame, that we can understand a God who is so powerful and transcendent and other than us, we're like, I, I can't come into his presence. And yet he made a way that we as unclean people can not only be in his presence, but to know him and to know he's with us. Which brings us to our second idiom. And I told you I'd to spend a little time on this one. The first one is if you play with fire, you're gonna get burned. The second one, though, so powerful. It's how this chapter ends. Priests get a fire in their belly. Unlike just Aaron's sons or the high priest, now in the New Testament, because God dwells in anyone who asks for forgiveness, you and I become priests. Did you know that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're considered a kingdom of priests? You, not me. Not people who are professional pastors. All of us are priests. We represent God before others and others before God in our prayers. And God wants priests to taste and see that God is good. And the same God that's like, oh my goodness, get away from the fire, is followed up in this story by saying, just because you've had experience with my transcendence, my holiness, I still want to have a communal meal with you. I still want to dine with you. I don't want you to be scared of me, God says. So he's going to tell the priest after this incident, let's come into my house let's dine together and let's talk and let's be intimate and let's be close together. And you can imagine, they're still mourning the loss. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Salomar, his sons who were left. Take the grain offering. That was the bread offering I made for you a few weeks ago and about six weeks ago. And the remains of the offering made by fire. Because remember, you took a portion of it. You burned that before the Lord and the rest of it you made into bread. And the priests only could take that bread behind the first veil and they would eat the bread in a communal meal to celebrate God. So Moses says, Hey, guys, I know you're mourning, but I'm not seeing you eating and communing with God. You're supposed to eat it. You're supposed to take the fire of God into you. You're supposed to take the, the presence of God into you without leaven, without sin, inside the altar. For it is most holy. Eat it. There is again eat it, eat it, eat it in a holy place. Because it is your due and your son's due. God wants you to take him into you. These sacrifices made by fire. So I have been commanded. Well, as it goes on, Moses made careful inquiry. Something's not right here. And we don't want this to happen again. He checks about the goats and the sin offering. Check. There it was burned up properly. But Moses is angry with Eleazar and Athamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left. Why? Saying, why have you not eaten? Why have you not taken into you this gift of the sin offering in the holy place where you're supposed to be since it's most holy and God's given it to you? Here's this grace again to bear the guilt of the congregation. This is not only your forgiveness, but you represent everybody else. This is the gift to them as well. To make atonement or a covering for them before the Lord. See, see, it's blood. It has not come inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. And here, despite the view of God's holiness, we get another glimmer of God's grace and mercy. Because Aaron says this. Aaron says to Moses, look, this day they have offered the sin offering. We did it right. We offered the burnt offering. We did that right before the Lord. But such things have befallen me. I lost my sons today. And I thought that the spirit of this communal meal with God is a spirit of celebration. And I know God wants us to celebrate in his presence. That's the whole design is that we're to experience the joy of the Lord. I didn't think with the loss of my sons that I could experience the communal meal in an authentic way. So the reason we're not eating it is because we didn't think we could do it properly because our hearts wouldn't be joyful, and God wants us joyful in His presence. If I had eaten the sin offering, in the heart condition I am still bereaving my sons, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? And Moses heard that and went, you know what? I'm content with that. That makes sense. Which again shows, even in God's holiness, His comfort toward the mourning, His tenderness toward the hurting... And that the higher principle outweigh the other principle, even in this context. But the point is still for you and I as priests that God wants us. If you lack courage, eat of his courage. Take it into you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You're having trouble forgiving people? You know what you need? Not to work harder at forgiving. You need to partake or taste of His forgiveness. Take it into you, and you will then be able to demonstrate the forgiveness that you've taken into you. You'll have a fire in your belly His courage, His forgiveness, His mercy, His patience, His compassion. The secret to the Christian life is not try harder, it's get closer get closer to the God that you take Him into you, you digest it into you, and His communicable attributes begin to flow out of you. And you don't take credit for it. You say, thank you, God, that the fruit of your Spirit, the work of your Spirit is coming out of me. Maybe this Easter season you want to reflect on the holiness of God. To confess to Him ways in which you have tried to lower his standard of holiness, thought you could come to God on your own terms. These are things we need to confess. Ways in which we try and be our own high priest and find our identity in, in what we do or how we do it rather than in who he is, what he says about us. But make this a week as you head to Easter of confession. Recognizing God's holiness, he's so distinct from us, and yet also his imminence that he is inherently good. And he wants to know you, to be with you, and for you to take him into you, to commune with him in a communal meal. Because the whole Bible is about Jesus and a God who wants to come near. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of your incredible work. God, I confess how often I sear my own conscience, become wise in my own eyes. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would go to each mind here, each person here, each decision here in this room. You would remind us of the grace in Jesus who paid it all. And yet also remind us that we need you to be our leader because our hearts can be so wayward and can trick us into thinking things that are not true are really true. May we walk in the power of your sacrifice toward this Easter season. In Jesus' name, amen.